The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in August 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Mark Lamos. To say that Mark Lamos is a director is certainly true, but it's also an understatement. He's also a violinist, an actor, an opera director, and other things. We'll get into all that later. But in his current role, Mark is the director of a show currently running off-Broadway called Indian Blood, the new A.R. Gurney show. He, in the past on Broadway, has directed Seascape, for which he won a Tony nomination as Best Revival, The Rivals, The Deep Blue Sea, Our Country's Good, a Tony nomination for that as Best Director, The Gershwin's Fascinating Rhythm, a ton of off-Broadway stuff, too much to mention, and for 17 seasons was the Artistic Director of Hartford Stage. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. And before we really start, in the interest of full disclosure, we need to tell our audience that while in the past we've had many guests on the program who I have worked with in my career in theater, Mark, you are the first guest that I have worked for, having been your PR director at Hartford Stage for eight and a half years. So uh, if people pick up on our banter, at least they'll know where it all came from. And maybe you can tell us what Howard was really like back then. It's impossible to describe. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll start with a softball, which is just tell us a little about Indian Blood, the new play by Pete Kearney. Indian Blood is... uh, is takes place in uh, classic Gurney territory. Uh, Buffalo, uh, 1946, just after the war. And we have the story of a 16-year-old boy who is coming of age inside a very structured wasp family. And um, what we watch is his rebellious streak, which he characterizes as Indian blood. He believes his grandfather has told him that he has Indian blood in him. And, um, and, uh, he uses that to exploit not only his occasional anger and resentment at the things around him, but also it stands for a kind of budding talent that he begins to feel that he has, that he might have artistic gifts. All of this is wrapped in the very sort of congenial, graceful, uh, A.R. Gurney mode of, of play going. Uh, it's a very funny, warm-hearted, and then slightly slightly bittersweet play, uh, but a memory piece. Now, A.R. Gurney, Pete Gurney, grew up in Buffalo. He did indeed. And it, and this is very autobiographical. Uh, uh, even the names of the uh, characters you don't meet are names of real people. I, I, I said to him one day, I love these names you come up with. And he said, oh, they were all actual people we knew. Peach Taylor is a sculptress. Uh, a Slip Krieger is the guy who works the exercise room down at the club. I said, how did you make these up? He said, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of directing uh, the show, it's very um, sparse uh, staging, a lot of chairs and movement on stage, but not a lot of scenery, not a lot of props, not a lot of set pieces. Was that a, a, a purposeful decision? Or was it a budget decision? Or how did you come to decide to do that? Pete has a very sort of uh, uh, upper New England wasp sensibility about uh, how how clean and simple. He'd like his plays to be staged, cleanly and simply. And um, I, that's pretty much what I tried to do. Uh, I said, all right, if we're going to be, if we're going to be really simple, that means we should probably not have any props. We should have hardly any scenery. Um, And the fact that he references our town, Thornton Wilder's classic play, inside of the play, um, was a kind of clue to me uh, uh, about the way to work with John Arnone, our set designer, and um, 
Howell Binkley, who did the projections and the lights, uh, and uh, how to sort of keep the staging as, as simple and economical as possible. It unlocks something in the writing. Uh, it's not it's not to do with money. It's to do with uh, not only having the characters use their imaginations, but a certain sparseness in the approach to telling the story. Uh, that's really what we were after. Well, also, I guess kind of like in our town, it allows the audience to really get involved with the message, with the play itself, as opposed to all the trimmings that would go around it. So when an actor is pouring a drink, they're just mimicking. There's no glass, there's no bottle. It's yeah. just pantomime, so to speak. The great challenge for the company was the um, long Christmas dinner scene. Dinner scenes are, are uh, classic in Gurney plays. I mean, there's even a, a play he wrote called The Dining Room. Uh, and in this case, however, though, it's all mimed. And... Mime is a, a very, very challenging thing for actors to to uh, tie into their work psychologically, and uh, these these guys have worked really hard on it. We had some great help from B. H. Berry, our fight choreographer, but also they really worked at it. And people sort of think, "Oh, I can mime uh, eating a chicken, or I can mime opening a drink." Well, it's a it's an art, and I think when it's done well, it adds a kind of luster to the to the play as a whole. At well, least that's what we hoped. I, I guess it's in order to do it convincingly and not not do it, overdo it. or Exactly. Underdo. That's what's hard. Over his career, Pete Gurney has tended to go through periods where he works with a particular director. It's a long period where David Trainer did his work, then Jack O'Brien. Now it seems... He's doing a lot of work with Jim Simpson, who runs the Flea Theater, and he's going to be directing two other Gurney plays this season. And, of course, this is your second Gurney play in three or four years, having mm -hmm. done Big Bill at Lincoln Center. Why do you think you've become a Gurney director? Oh, goodness. Well, um, I think, I hope I served him well on Big Bill. He was he was very happy with that production, and I love doing it. Um, I And I, I he said there are a few directors I really... Uh, love working with Dan Sullivan is another um, uh, Jim is one and and I'm very grateful to be you know part of that current current group uh, um, and I I I'm not sure why exactly but uh, I'm 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 glad it's worked out we've become good friends over over this last few years and of course you'd also produced at Hartford uh, the perhaps the most spoken of and littlest scene Gurney play the snowball which yes. was uncharacteristically huge yes and did that experience make you more interested in his work oh right from the get go when I. I'm a Midwesterner. I was born and raised in Chicago. And when I came to Hartford to run the Hartford Stage Company in 1980, I remember that one of the one of the enjoyable things for me was 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 trying to plumb an understanding of the culture of New Englanders, uh, especially old money New Englanders, and, and, and in fact, this WASP group that Pete writes of. And actually, the first Gurney play that I produced there was Children, an early play of his that Lynn Meadow had done at Manhattan Theatre Club, and we did a revival of. And that's when I first got to know Pete, and in fact, met some of his family at that time uh, in Farmington, Connecticut. And then Jack O'Brien called me a few years later and said, there's this play we have from Pete called the snowball based on his novel and would you be interested in doing a co-production with the Old Globe which Jack was the artistic director of and I loved the play and again uh, when on our opening night in Hartford 
numerous audience members said, oh, this reminds me of my own childhood. Um, and uh, I knew that we had found a play that absolutely spoke to a certain part of our audience in Hartford, Connecticut. I've always been, I, I told the playwright Tony Kushner once, I said, I'm, I find I'm absolutely um, fascinated by two groups of people as they're dramatized, Jews and wasps. I said, I don't know what it is exactly that makes me so fascinated by particularly, uh, this was when we commissioned a play from Tony based on an old Yiddish play called The Dibbuk. And he said, what is it about this that you love? I said, I don't know, but there's a certain there's a certain exotic communi- community here that I'm seeking to understand that I find very, very interesting. And I found myself saying the same thing to Pete Gurney about this these constant investigations of wasp culture. And I just find these two extremely different groups of people uh, fascinating to to uh, uh, sort of investigate in some crazy way. I don't I don't know why. Well, why, why wasps? What was what the appeal of, of wasps? I'm not sure. I mean, there's that strain in American literature that even you, you find it in Fitzgerald and you find it in uh, um, John O'Hara. And Cheever, Cheever, Peter's adapted. Yeah, I mean Edith Wharton, uh, Henry James. Uh, James was particularly fascinated with these people. Uh, William Dean Howells, even Twain to a certain extent. Um, and fr- and living in Hartford and 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 being around certainly on our board at that time, the vestiges of some old money uh, and the old sort of power brokers of that society. Uh, bankers and real estate people, just like the grandfather in Indian Blood, I just became fascinated by their lives, uh, and I can't tell you why. I mean, I think I can't tell you why. The fact that I can't tell you why these two groups of people fascinate me so much is why they continue to, because I can't quite define what it is that appeals to me. But so it sounds much. like like it's more moneyed wasps, wealthy wasps. I think, yeah, yeah I think in and a maybe way, maybe it's the wealth that makes them interesting because of certain mannerisms and well, and their accent. Electricities, right, frankly. Right, right. Uh, uh, the first time I met the parents of a friend of mine who grew up in Farmington, Connecticut, he said, we're going to meet my parents at the Hartford Club, this rather dowdy old club that's been there forever with old scuffed furniture, etc. And there were these I, – I didn't know what I was going to expect, but I expected something that you would see in a movie. And what I got were two very nice people who were quite rumpled, quite old – the man was wearing an old, old suit, but red socks. Um, the, his wife was had no makeup, uh, white hair pulled back. Uh, I mean, they were so they were on on one hand completely unpretentious, on the other, you know, absolutely delightful to be with. On the other hand, rather off-puttingly eccentric. And um, it, we were all had one drink. It was clear that you would have one drink, and that was it. <laughs> before dinner, and the the uh, uh, waiter brought over. Uh, uh, you know, a tray of um, carrots, saltines, and <laughs> celery sticks. Mm-hmm. That was the appetizer. Right, it right. was completely strange. <laughs> well, as you talk about those folks coming back to Indian blood, you have those type of characters portrayed by some extraordinary actors. John McMartin, Pamela Peyton Wright, who play the grandparents. Indeed. And Jack Gilpin, who has done many Gurney plays, many of the premieres. Yeah. Um are there what, what do you look for when you're casting a gurney play? Um, a, an ease with this world 
and an understanding of of this uh, very very uh, specific and uh, eccentric and very loving uh, landscape that's in all of the plays. When, when even when the characters become difficult, you get a sense that you're you're watching a memoir that's trying to come to terms in a loving way with what what his youth was like um, or what his young manhood was like. There's a there's a sweetness to the whole that uh, the actors have to capture somehow. But it's that wasp starchiness that is absolutely essential. Um, when we did Big Bill, John Michael Higgins had it. You know, Big Bill Tilden, famous tennis player who who uh, had a problem with young boys uh, or you know young very young men at a time when that couldn't even be discussed or dealt with in any way other than jail. And not only was he dealing with that, but he's dealing with being a part of the sort of wasp matrix uh, in sports, etc. So it just it just magnified Pete's whole um, modus vivendi of, of, of being in a kind of constricted world. Here it was doubled by the, the sexual orientation of the character, then as well as his professional life as well as his wasp upbringing. Now, the show Indian Blood revolves really around two protagonists, Eddie, who's a 16-year-old that you mentioned earlier, and I guess it's his cousin, Lambert. Mm -hmm. How did you cast those two? Very talented young men in in, in their roles. Yes, they're wonderful. Uh, Charles Sakaritas plays Eddie. Mm -hmm. It's it's really his story, and he tells the story and participates in it. Um, And the other boy uh, is uh, uh, Jeremy Blackman, Blackman, um, who... uh, we found from he he's he's a student at Columbia. Mm-hmm. He's a very young actor, very very talented. Uh, Charles uh, was understudying in Awake and Sing when we when he came in to read for us, and um, they were our biggest worries. In fact, uh, as soon as we first began to talk about the play, when Pete first asked me to read it, I said, "Oh, brother, where do we find?" 16-year-old boys who can pull this off. And um, in talking to the casting director, Stephanie Clapper, she said, well, first of all, we don't look for 16-year-old boys. We find boys who can play 16 but have acting chops, and that's, in fact, what we've got. And and it works beautifully, and they're very... they, They really make the whole thing sort of worth it for me. You also have a very talented musical theater actress, Rebecca Luker, cast as the mother of uh, of Eddie, of Charles uh, Saccharidi's character. Um, she, at one point in the Christmas uh, dinner scene, sings Cole Porter's You'd Be So Nice to Come Home to. Was that in the script, or was that something you added because of her and because of the fact that she actually has a CD of Cole Porter music that oh, she has golly, done? Oh, golly, I didn't realize oh, that. Yeah, it's all she, Cole uh, Porter. No, she was cast. We needed someone... We knew she would have to sing. That was in the that was in the script from the very beginning. Um, we didn't want someone who sounded as glorious as Rebecca sounds, and uh, right and 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 she she was absolutely perfect for the part. There was just there was everything about how her how she acts it is just perfection. And so I was a little nervous because I'd never met her or worked with her before. We knew we wanted her, and we just offered her the part, and she accepted. We were thrilled. So I didn't meet her before the first rehearsal. And I was nervous about saying to her, now, but Rebecca, we need you to sound like a talented amateur. Mm-hmm. And before I even got those words out of my mouth, she said, I should just sound like somebody who's choir practice, right? And I said, well, a little better than that. You know, somebody who might have gone on to be a bit of a professional singer, but, a, you know, maybe with a band in 1946, but nothing more than that. 
and she absolutely understood what the parameters of female vocalists was in 1946 and um, absolutely understood this sort of nervous moment where she has to sing the song in front of her in front of her family and uh, it's it's just one of the nicest moments I've ever been a part of in a, in a play she just pulls it off beautifully I think mm-hmm. plus you get to hear Rebecca Luker for about three minutes which there are a few things better than that you know acapella yeah yeah well, as we talk about music, going back to the very beginning of your career, you actually didn't start out in theater. You were a violin prodigy. Right. So how did you go from being a violin prodigy to being an actor to fairly quickly being a director? Well, I wouldn't call myself a prodigy as a violin. I was a kid who played the violin. Um, my mother was a pianist who's I think, probably would have had a professional career if, if the war hadn't come along and marriage and children. Uh and uh, the story goes that when I was in third grade or something, I they, we were listening to music and I was jumping up and down at one point and my mother said, do you like what you hear? And I said, yes. And she said that every time you heard a violin, um, you, you loved this sound. So all of a sudden I was saddled with a violin and lessons and oh, all that stuff. And I did that from third grade. I got into college on a violin scholarship at Northwestern University. I couldn't have gotten in any other way, and um, but I always really loved the theater, and I had that had you know I'd been in shows in grade school and high school and that sort of stuff, and I noticed that when I played the violin, I was always a nervous wreck, and when I acted, I always felt sort of great, and um, and I hated practicing, and I was the kind of musician who had to practice quite a lot, and it's a lonely life, um, and I also felt that I wasn't. I didn't have the personality of a musician. I noticed that when I was really at Northwestern with superb, you know, people who were talent, more talented than I was and whose life was devoted to these instruments, piano, violin, etc., I thought I'm not this isn't me. This is not me. I'm somewhere else off off of this grid and um and I was supposed to play in the pit uh orchestra for an opera performance at Northwestern and I was offered a wonderful role in the drama school, and I asked the conductor if I could um, be excused from one performance, and he quite rightly uh, was very angry with me and said, you know, you need to discover what you want to do with your life, but this is being completely unprofessional, and I walked out of his office, and I called my parents, and I said, I'm leaving the music school, I'm going to be an actor, and uh, I'm saying goodbye to this, and it was a very, very difficult moment in all our three of our lives. Well, but was it a crushing blow to your parents? Horrible. Envisioned you as this violin yeah, project. They did. They did. And you know, they 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 really saw I was successful enough. I probably you know could have gotten into the Chicago Symphony or somewhere down the road and and had a life teaching and playing and whatnot. Um, I don't think I would have ever been a real soloist. I just don't think I was that good. But I was good, you know. Um, but it was awful, and yet it was. One of those things you only do when you're that age, when you, you come to a crossroads and it just presents itself to you and you realize this is now or never. Um, and I gave it up. I tried c- to continue to play for a while and I was I was too good to just have it be a hobby after having had it be the center of my life. It was completely disappointing to pick it up every few weeks and realize that all the muscles were in the fingers and whatnot, the bowing arm were you know, becoming flaccid and and not really serving me at the level that I'd been playing at. 
And so they finally sold the violin, and that was an awful day for them, too. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they got over it, and they were very supportive, ultimately. Well, I guess they kind of knew your violin career was over. They sold it. <laughs> they did. That's kind of really <laughs> that was definitely the, put an end to that it. That was a door closing, I'll tell you. <laughs> so then, then you were acting for a bit. Mm-hmm. About 10, 10, 12 years, I was an actor, first in Chicago, my hometown, and then rather quickly in, in New York. Um, I had a couple nice breaks, and and then I went to the Guthrie. I'd always wanted to be involved in classical theater, and uh, and that opportunity came along after I did a musical that started there that came to Broadway with Christopher Plummer. They they asked me back after that closed. Well, we should say on, on this channel, we should indicate what that musical is, which was the musical of Cyrano, right. in which you played Christian opposite right. Chris Plummer. Right, right, right. Uh, and... Uh, that really, that what what was wonderful about that wasn't so much <laughs> doing a musical that was f- freighted with problems and coming to Broadway with it with a big star, but um, the fact that it opened the door to the Guthrie and a nice association with that theater for almost four seasons. It was really a wonderful time. And it was Michael Langham at the Guthrie who had the bright idea that you might be someone who could direct? He did. He looked at my acting and said, you should be a director. <laughs> uh, no, he said, this might be something you ought to try. And um, I did it first with some two-character plays, Fugard and whatnot. And then after that, uh, it just became more people asked, would you do this? And I said, yes, I would. And then all of a sudden... There was no time to act anymore, so it was kind of... But it was a fast acceleration, because you only began directing in about 76, 77, and by 1980, you were offered not only the Hartford stage position, but uh, the California Shakespearean Festival. Right. And you'd already been an acting artistic director out in Arizona, right? The Arizona I mean, that's Theater amazing Company. in yeah. three or four years. Yeah. Yeah, it was astonishing. I don't quite know why... I, I think probably my, 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 my work was, was good... And it was good because, as a young director, I was just jumping in with both feet and and not thinking about it, you know, which is something that's kind of the best thing you can do sometimes. Also, I had a lot of background as an actor in classical theater, so I knew what I wanted to hear on a stage, and and, uh, that's really what sort of propelled me into it, I think. I also think it was just at a time in the nonprofit theater movement where the, the whole movement was just burgeoning. And there were wonderful opportunities for young directors, and there weren't that many young directors around. It was it was really at the dawn of graduate training programs, that sort of thing. I never went to one. I mean, you know, I never had any training as a director. Um, uh, but it just, I think maybe because of my reputation at the Guthrie and people knew that I'd worked a lot with Langham and because of some wonderful people being behind me like Michael Langham and John Conklin and a few other older pros that... Uh, it took off so quickly. So you were concurrently acting and working as a director. Yes, but really just for a while, and then and then more the directing, and more directing. Yeah, took over. And then when did Hartford Stage come about? Seventeen seasons there, but when did that start? It began in 1980. And how? Uh, again, they were looking for someone to uh, replace Paul Widener, who had been uh, associated with the theater for a long and successful tenure, and um, they began to cast their net and. Uh, and I actively sought it when it came my way and had some interviews, and off we went. <laughs> so in 17 years, what are you proudest of as your accomplishments there? Golly, um, partially surviving it um, <laughs> because it's, it's, uh, it, it, it was a lot of work. It was the hardest work. I think, I think being an artistic director 
is is some of the most demanding work a human being can go through. It's not physically demanding, ex- other than it's it's very long hours. But you're constantly being um, challenged, judged. You're constantly uh, responding to plays, uh, artists, actors, directors. You have to be a people person. You have to be an artist. You have to work with board members. You have to work with actors. You have to lead a staff. You have to hire staffs over and over. Um, you're constantly working in this country in the nonprofit field, so you're always strapped for money one way or another, no matter how wealthy the theater is. Um, you're always looking for the cutting-edge writer, the cutting-edge director. You're trying to blend them in a season of six or seven plays with things that will keep an audience with you. Um, you're you're also a part of a community that has diversity, that has uh, varying demographics. And in this day and age, that can be some of the most exciting work an artistic director has in front of him or her, that... You want to bring that community into the theater, the 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 Latina community, the Latino community, the the African American community. You want to keep the audience you've got. You want a younger audience. It's just endless, and it can be wonderfully challenging and invigorating. And uh, and for many years, it was for me. And on behalf of Hartford Stage in 1988, you accepted the Regional Tony Award for Regional Theater. What sort of works were you doing at Hartford Stage that? would re- represent the body of work, shall we say? Well, we were doing a huge mix of, I think, what we were known for, and probably Howard, having having been on top of it uh, while we were there together, is, would be better at answering this than I, but it was a, a very eclectic mix of work. And I remember that one of the big light bulbs that went off um, when we were having one of our endless marketing meetings was to, to come up with a term, expect the unexpected, that instead of selling to the public a tried and true uh, picture of ourselves, we would say to everybody, you won't know what you're going to get here next. Everything, Every time you walk in this theater, it's going to be another surprise. It's going to be another kind of experience. And so on the one hand, you could get Shakespeare that was very sort of acutely reimagined in modern dress or what have you in the early days of doing modern dress classics, followed by... Um, a brand new play by an untried playwright, uh, followed by uh, a musical, followed by another new play by maybe a, a more known playwright like A.R. Gurney uh, or Lanford Wilson, uh, a commission of a classic play by a living writer. You just And it changed all the time. And one season never resembled the other, except in the fact that there was a high percentage of, of of investigations of classic theater treasures alongside these brand new plays. And in the first, in our very first season there, in 1980 to 81, uh, all three new works transferred to Broadway. What were those three? (laughs) Um, A new play called Einstein and the Polar Bear, which opened and closed within a week. Uh, (laughs) uh, A new musical called Is There Life After High School? And a one-man show starring John Cullum called... Whistler. Whistler. In that period, you used to say in planning the seasons, I remember, that if you liked everything we did in the season, you were doing something wrong, that 
you wanted it to be so eclectic that every that that no one should be able to be absolutely in love with all six of them because you wanted that kind of diversity. But your work in particular, your personal work, was that classical work over such a long period, and it's what you were really acclaimed for, the, the Shakespeare series and then later uh, a smaller series of Ibsen plays and, and, and Moliere plays. And at the time, you would often be asked when you were going to move on from Hartford. And you're, you would like to say that to people that if I was a freelance director, I wouldn't get the chance to direct these plays. Why would I possibly want to go anywhere else, such as, you know, you, you couldn't have done a six-hour paragant anywhere but at a theater where you got to decide you did it. Has the transition from being an artistic director and choosing not only your own work but the work of others, has that transition been, been difficult? It's a, it's very odd. It's not difficult so much as it's it's strange because um, the, the and, 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 and quite... Uh, it, 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 Amusing and fascinating. It's a lot of different things. On the one hand, it's great not to have to be responsible for every little nook and cranny of a theater's situation. That I can come in, I can do the play I want to do, I can cast it pretty much the way I want to cast it, and I don't have to worry about anything after opening night, not even what to pull out of the reviews for a quote ad. I can, you know, get on my horse and ride into the sunset. That's all terrific. The the, the 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 strange part for me is 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 uh, is that I'd say seventy percent of the projects I do are brought to me. In other words, we would like to do a production of play X or play Y. Would you be interested in doing it? I do. There are various artistic directors who who call and producers who say, you know, we'd like to have you at the theater in two seasons. Can we start talking about things you might like to do? Which is always a little bit nicer. Um, on the other hand, I've 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 uh, become familiar with plays that I never would have read or never would have thought about doing um, in this other context, uh, where somebody calls up and says, "We'd love you to do a production of well, like Mom's The Circle, which I'm doing at ACT this year, or uh, something else I was offered that I always had wanted to do. She loves me, and then I couldn't fit it into my schedule at another theater. So um, when, I, when I've when i worked at Lincoln Center, uh, except for Big Bill, um, uh, both the rivals and Seascape were arrived at with talks with Andre Bishop about what would you like to do and what would be fun in this slot and, <clears throat> you know, that sort of, that sort of discussion. Uh, and it, that's always a slightly more fun way to go about it. I also, I mean, one of the things I, I, I that, I, you know, looking at people who do what I did, I find very, very amusing because all of a sudden being on the other side of the fence to watch an artistic director at work and notice the ways and the means, notice the staff around him or her, notice the board that's answering, that's either praising or vilifying. Notice the the amount of support that kind of person has, at, you know, at the head of a at the head of a of an institution and a partnership with the managing director, etc., is something I occasionally miss. 
I don't miss the responsibility of it. I miss just the other day I, I, I had to arrange three design meetings on three different projects and I turned to my partner and said, I need a secretary. I just need a secretary and a, you know, two staff people, I'd be fine. Kind of like you had back in the good old days. <clears throat> kind of like right? I had when I could just call out the right. door. Could you call Ricardo Hernandez and get him on the phone? <laughs> well, with all these different entities uh, coming to you with different projects, other than time constraints, scheduling, how do you decide what you want to do or what you want to turn down? Oh, that is difficult to answer. I um, sometimes it's decided for me just because of where it, what I'm offered falls, and there's something uh-huh. else there, or I want to take some time off. Uh, sometimes, what 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 has been very interesting about this freelance life is that I've been asked to do th- productions of things that I've already done. And I've really enjoyed that enormously. It's wonderful going back to something that you've done once, well or not well, uh, and getting a chance to to revisit it, particularly a big play, a big Shakespeare play. Um, So I've loved that. Um, I like the travel very much, too. Uh, I find that sort of enjoyable. Sometimes it's a little annoying, but most of the time it's fun. Um, The... It's it's I don't have a very short list of plays I'd love to do. That's the hard part. <clears throat> Pardon me. So when people call and say, we'd like you to do a play in 07, 08, what are you thinking of doing? Or, you know, what's your short list? It's there are very, very few plays and a, and a discussion then or or a script that's sent will start the ball rolling or an actress who's available who's interested in doing something. Of some of those shows that you've revisited, what would stand out in your mind as being fun to redo or challenges to oh, revisit? I did. Um, one of the happiest times was a, a, a production I did at Yale Repertory Theater two or three seasons ago of Taming of the Shrew, uh, which I had done in my very first year of directing in California with Dana Ivey, a young Dana Ivey, as... as Katharina, and um, they asked if I wanted to do a Shakespeare comedy. I said, yes, and sort of mulled around for a while, and I suddenly got this idea of doing it with all men, all Hispanic men. Mm. And um, I just felt it would unlock something in the play, and it would be great fun to, to, it would unlock a certain boisterous quality in the play. And it would also be sociologically about the way Hispanic women and Hispanic men deal with each other. Not that they deal with each other like Kate and Petruchio, uh, but that I see Hispanic women the way they put up with Hispanic men just on the street in New York, and I started to find that really interesting in my mm-hmm. neighborhood, the Upper West Side. So I thought it'd be fun to maybe try this, and I loved working on it. I loved working with all of these Hispanic actors who never got the chance to do Shakespeare and were absolutely as trained and as wonderful as any actors I'd ever worked with. You know, They were all coming into the auditions dressed like drug dealers because that was, that was the only th- auditions they were called up for. I mean, it was, it was horrific to realize how ghettoized these actors were, and they were wondrously talented and great fun to work with. And also, for me, it was a hugely cultural... It was a big cultural learning curve. Uh, first of all, to have the temerity as a Caucasian male to, you know, surround myself with Hispanic guys and 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 kind of act as if I knew what I wanted from them, but also that it made me realize how multifaceted the the Latin culture is in this country. There were men in the cast whose parents were Spanish from. Spain, Madrid. There were some whose parents were born and raised. They were three or four generations in in New York. They were Puerto Rican. There were Cubans. There were 
it, you know, I mean, it was it was there, there were Bolivians. There were oh my god, you know, this terrific cast of men who bonded and then made one of my absolute favorite productions. It was just a it was a joy to work on, and they, I felt that they and I, because I was coming back to the play after two decades almost. And feminism had changed the landscape still so much in that time, uh, not to mention the visibility of Hispanic culture in this country. Um, it, it, for all of us, it was a, it was a, 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 something that was so joyous to embrace. It was one of my favorite. Productions. And having some of them play the female roles too. Yeah, they all. Yeah, I mean, and the, the, the Rafael del Campo, this spectacular Philippine actor, played Katharina and was just. Sensational. I mean, just wonderful, wonderful. A question we often ask when we're talking to actors on this program is the how they describe the experience and how they like the different experience of working on stage or in film or television. In your case, we have to ask about your extensive opera career and what working in opera offers you that is or is not different from from working in so-called dramatic theater? It's very different. It's very, very different. Partially what it offers me is a return to my musical roots as a kid and a young adult uh, because it's I get to sort of indulge again in all the things I loved about classical music. Um, I, I can read a score and I can talk to any conductor. I can talk to a singer about keys and things like that. So I'm... I'm, 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 I'm uh, well versed in the musical end of things, perhaps more than some stage directors might be, um, but also I like the fact that it's just so different. A um, uh, uh, it, it just requires different muscles from me. Um, for one thing, uh, opera singers come in with the roles already learned. Actors spend the whole rehearsal period plumbing the depths of the role. The opera singer comes in having studied the part really longer than sometimes you've studied the libretto and knows it inside and out. Sometimes they've performed it in many theaters before they come and do Tosca with you or Madame Butterfly with you. That, too, is a wonderful challenge and very more often invigorating than not. Uh, but you never get that with an actor. You rarely get somebody saying, I'm doing my second Hamlet and I'd like to do it with you. You know, I like also the, the just the size of opera. It's just bigger than theater for the most part and so it's and in in some ways more spiritual and because it's music which is the you know the abstract expression of an emotional life uh, and I I like being around the music that amount of time I like the first Mozart opera I did I just thought I'd died and gone to heaven just to be able to be to go to work every morning and have seven hours of Mozart going on in front of you you know or when I made my debut at the Met and the tenor was Luciano Pavarotti and everybody said, oh God, you're going to hate that, you're going to hate that, he can't act, he can't move, he's so huge. It's, I, I said, I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care. <laughs> I, I just get to listen to him every day, you know. Uh, uh, there was a particular joy in that and of course he does know how to be on a stage and he does know a lot more than people gave him credit for. And as someone who came out of acting, you occasionally at Hartford put yourself on stage a couple of times in <laughs> yes. Anatole and in The Importance of Being Earnest. And 
the audience who may say, gosh, we never see a director, the audience has had the opportunity to see you on film once in Longtime Companion opposite Bruce Davison. Um, do you ever get the temptation now, really many years on from your last acting experience, to go back and try it again? I'd love to do film or TV. I, I think not even TV. I'd love to do film because I felt doing that one movie long ago that um, I had a kind of affinity for what a camera, uh, for a relationship with a camera. I, I understood that almost immediately, and it would be it would be great to be able to develop that a little bit. But no, I don't get. I don't. I don't watch the actors I'm working with thinking, gee, I'd love to be up there with them. <laughs> in fact, today I was saying to Jack Gilpin, this wonderful actor in Indian Blood, we were both getting our lunch at the same place. And he said, you know, this is all I'll eat until after the performance at, 8 at 9.30, 10 o'clock tonight. And I said, oh, I remember that. And I'm hate, I, ha I hated that being a part of my life as an actor. Have you ever directed in film? I know you've done no. some television work, but never film. No. Would you want to? Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. But I'm not really trained in it. I don't think you need to be necessarily, but uh, I haven't pursued that opportunity at all. Yeah. You mentioned before you have a short list of, uh, of projects you'd want to do. What, what kind of things do you want to do in the future? Goodness. <clears throat> or, or what are you working on now for the future? Well, I am working on something I've always wanted to do. And now that I am working on it, I'm completely terrified. But it's a play by Frank Vedekind called Lulu. Um, he's actually represented on Off-Broadway now, and I think he'll be on Broadway next year, Spring Awakening, uh, Michael Mayer's production. Um, so it might be a Vedicant Awakening, mm -hmm. but I'm doing Lulu at Yale Rep next year, and it's a very scary proposition. It's what, what, is, what is Lulu, and why is it scary? Lulu is a sex tragedy. That's the, that's the byline on Lulu, and it's about a woman who is sort of Every woman, all woman, Eve, she's a temptress, she's a mo mother, she's a Madonna, she's whatever men want her to be, and then she's more than that, and ends the play being a victim of Jack the Ripper. It's a, an incendiary drama, or was in its time, uh, which is sort of the early part of the century, last, uh, late part of the last century, or the 19th century, actually. It was turned into an opera by Berg, um, and... Uh, uh, very rarely done in this country. So, uh, but you know, I it, that was on the short list, and it was picked up right away when I mentioned it. So here I am, stuck with it now. And you're also going back to your roots at the Guthrie, are you not? Well, I'm going to the new Guthrie. You know, they have a brand new building with two, three theaters in it, and uh, I'm going to be in the new proscenium house with a terrific new play by Alfred Urey called uh, Edgardo Mine about uh, an historical incident, a, 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 a boy, a Jewish boy who was baptized in the 19th century and then when the Vatican heard about it, they kidnapped him from his home and raised him in the Vatican. And uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating and terrifying story and Alfred's done a brilliant adaptation of it. It was first premiered at Hartford, my old stomping grounds, after I'd left. And... Uh, much, much revised and rewritten for this version. What have you not done that you would like to do? Oh, dear. That question is always so difficult to answer. I would love to... Uh, I've always wanted to do a big Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. 
I've always I'm, I'm a huge fan of South Pacific and The King and I and all of them Allegro I love them I just think they're amazing pieces and I think they're thrilling to be a part of um, they're great visionary writers and uh and I th they, they, those are the classic musicals that will last forever. As, as you know, as Cole Porter songs get extracted from all those things, um, it's Rodgers and Hammerstein that continue to live. And and even the themes of the musicals are still very, very resonant and important. Uh, I, I just, I would kill to get a chance to really do one full out with all the bells and whistles. Well, as we wrap up, I'd like to just urge audiences to go see Indian Blood at primary stages. 59 East 59 is the theaters. Beautiful. Small theater. Wonderful intimate, house, yeah. Wonderful intimate. place to have a play. Indian Blood by uh, A.R. Gurney and directed by Mark Lamos. Mark, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Mark. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.